welcome to all of you. We're continuing in our study of the book of Ephesians, so if you would turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We began this uh, first section of Ephesians 1 last week. We're taking the title for this sermon is, What on Earth is God Doing? Have you ever heard someone ask that question? Or maybe something's come into your life and you've asked that question. Well, the book of Ephesians is a book that gives an answer. Paul begins uh, the third verse uh, with the words, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as we heard in that last song, Paul is saying that God is worthy of being praised because of what he has done, is doing, and will be doing on earth. This phrase is uh, found actually three times in the New Testament. Here in Ephesians, what's in view is what he has done. It's uh, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Um, God has willed and worked to provide superabundant blessings. In 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 and 4, Paul adds to God's titles. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, and then points to what he's presently doing, saying, Who comforts us in all of our affliction, Comfort is a word that means to come alongside and to help or to encourage. God is at work seeking to come into people's lives to comfort and encourage them. And then Peter, by the Spirit of God, uses the same opening words to praise God for what he will be doing in the future when he says, Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to to be born again to a living hope. And so God has worked, is at work, to give us the hope of a glorious future. As Peter says, an inheritance imperishable, undefiled, which will not fade away, reserved on, uh, in heaven. So what on earth is God doing? Well, he has done, he is doing, and he will do works which bring the very greatest blessing into the lives of those who respond to him. That's what God's doing on earth. And so here in Ephesians um, chapter 1, we're going to look at some of these past blessings that have impact in our present lives. Now, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14, is one sentence in the original Greek. And... Uh, Tony pointed out a couple weeks ago, sometimes when we try to divide it up, it, different translators divide it up a little uh, differently. And so I thought, to get us started and all on the same page, uh, I'm going to read it, and I'm going to put it on the screen in the Phillips translation, uh, which gives us a, a good idea of how it would be in modern English. So we'll look at that together. Uh, blessed be has the idea of praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for giving us through Christ every spiritual benefit as citizens of heaven. For consider what he has done. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us to be in Christ, 
his children, holy and blameless in his sight. He planned in his love that we should be adopted as his own children through Jesus Christ. This was his will and pleasure that we might praise that glorious generosity of his which he granted to us in the beloved. It is through him at the cost of his own blood that we are redeemed, freely forgiven through that free and generous grace which has overflowed into our lives and given us wisdom and insight. For God has allowed us to know the secret of his plan, and it is this, he purposed long ago in his sovereign will that all human history should be consummated in Christ, that everything that exists in heaven or earth should find its perfection and fulfillment in him. In Christ, we have been given an inheritance since we were destined for this by the one who works out all his purposes according to the design of his own will. So that we, in due time, as the first to put our hope in Christ, may bring praise to his glory. And you too trusted in him when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And after you gave your confidence to him, you were, so to speak, stamped with the promised Holy Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance until the day when God completes the redemption of what is his own. And that will again be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we step into your presence and we do praise you. If you gave us what we deserved, we would all be in a lost eternity, rightly condemned because of our sin. But you have chosen to provide a way of salvation. And we pray as we look at some of the benefits that you give us, have given us in Christ, that uh, our hearts would unite in praise to you, thankful for, for your great grace. And so we ask for your help and your blessing as we look at this passage. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is divided into three sections. Each section emphasizes the work of a different member of the Godhead. In verses 3 through 6 last week, we saw the will of the Father. Salvation was his plan. In verses 7 through 12, we see the work of the Son, his purchase of us and his preeminence. In verses 13 and 14, we'll see the witness of the Spirit his pledge to us. Last week we looked at the first section, the will of God, his plan. And so we, oh, let me, we read, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us before there was a planet that all who trusted in his son would be someday holy and blameless in God's sight. I was reading in a book that said if you took a caterpillar 
and took some of its DNA and sent it in to be analyzed, you would get a, a, a record back, this is a butterfly. Because even though it doesn't look like a butterfly, even though it doesn't act like a butterfly, its essence is a butterfly. And when I put my faith in Jesus Christ, I became a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed, new things have come. God took that DNA of fallen Adam and changed it. And someday I'll be blameless and holy before him. Because God chose to do that work. The section goes on. And, and it says, uh, in love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Not only did God make it so someday we'll be without sin in his presence, holy and blameless, but God actually chose that we would be uh, his sons. You know, that's uh, a position of personal, intimate relationship. And when it's fully realized and we have those resurrection bodies, um, again, uh, using Philip's translation of, of uh, Romans uh, 8, the end of verse 18, it says, it talks about the magnific magnificent future God has planned for us. He says, for the whole creation is on tiptoe or anxiously longing to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. For all eternity, we will be a glorious display of the grace of God. And the response is that it's to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed upon us in the beloved one. This wasn't something we deserved. This wasn't something that we merited. This was something God decided in, in his undeserved favor to give us before the foundation of the world. And now we're going to look at this section of the Lord. But I want you to note the last words of uh, verse 6, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. The beloved was God's public description, his public title of the Lord Jesus. I think it's very interesting. 30 times in this book we're going to find in him, in Christ, through Jesus Christ, but one time we're going to hear the words, in the beloved. And it's right at the beginning of this section which is going to talk about how Jesus Christ has purchased us. And, and it's interesting, as you, you trace where those words are found in the scriptures, um, at the Lord's baptism by John, Mark 1.11, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. At the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17, 5, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Even in the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, 1, quoted in Matthew 12, 18, behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. Before this verse, three times God has said his plan was going to come to fruition in Christ. 
in him through Jesus Christ, in Christ, but now on the cusp of taking up Christ's part of our salvation, God uses the term in the beloved to let us know that the Father knew exactly the precious cost of fulfilling his plan, that you would be holy and blameless before him, that you could have this position as a, as a child in God's family. We heard in the first meeting, it pleased the Father to crush him. But the one he crushed was his beloved one. I thought and thought about that, and I wish I had the ability and eloquence to put into words the reality behind those simple words, freely bestowed in the beloved. But I don't. And I suspect not even the angels in heaven, who as John Phillips put it, saw the Lord leave heaven's glory, enter human life by means of the incarnation, live a perfect life and then die, that he had to suffer the agonies of crucifixion, the heartbreak of rejection, betrayal and abandonment, the sting of ridicule and shame, the horror of being made sin, the torment of God's wrath and the indignity of death, even those angels who saw it all don't have adequate words. God looked at you and said, I love you enough. I'm going to take my beloved son in whom I am well pleased and crush him for your sake. And so as we go through these verses, in the back of your head, keep in mind the cost of this salvation. So verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. There are six words in the New Testament for redemption. The one that Paul uses here, and it'll be used again in verse 14, means to set free by the payment of a price. It's used in the Greek of the time for the ransoming of captives taken in war uh, or the setting of a, uh, of a slave free. It has both a backward and a forward look. It looks backward to, to the slavery the person was in. It looks forward to the freedom that, that this person is going to receive. Uh, we were in captivity to slavery from something which held us in its grip. It has this idea that this person is held by something that he cannot free himself from. He's without hope. He's helpless. He's bound. And he's being bought back. And of course the thing that bound us was our sin and its certain penalty in the courtroom of God's justice. But it says this, in him we have redemption through his blood. Jesus Christ came and paid the price necessary to purchase our freedom. His precious blood 
Peter describes it in 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. His death was the payment for our sin. And there's a result. And, and he says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. This word forgiveness has the idea of release from the bonds that hold us. The cancellation of a debt. In this case, the guilt of our sins. It also has the idea of not only freedom from, from the penalty of our sins, but also freedom from the power of sin. We've been released. We've been freed. And it's according to the riches of his grace. Undeserved favor. And notice the words which he lavished upon us. One of my favorite authors is John Phillips uh, because he, he has sometimes some wonderful illustrations. And he uses the illustration of, of Sam Duncanon. Sam Duncanon was, was a, a poor man, a drunkard, who at Glasgow Mission was, was saved. And he couldn't preach, and he wasn't an evangelist, uh, you know, so he wanted to do something for Christ. So he would go around and find colored pictures. And then he would look at the picture and look at it, and then he would come up with, with a, uh, a verse of scripture or, or the text of a hymn that fit with that picture, and he would frame it, and he would wait until he, he sent someone that needed something, and, and he would find the one that he thought would help the best, and he would give them that picture. And one day, he got a picture of Niagara Falls. And it showed the flood of the water coming over the, the wall and crashing down below. And, and, and it just showed the power of the falls and the endless amount of water that, that comes. And he just couldn't find a verse. And then D.L. Moody came to England or to Scotland to preach. And Ira Sankey, Sankey uh, sang a song that P.B. Bliss had written. And the lyrics of the song was this. Have you on the Lord believed? Still there's more to come. Of his grace have you received? Still there's more to follow. Oh, the grace the Father shows. Still there's more to follow. Freely he his grace bestows. Still there's more to follow. More and more, more and more, always more to follow. Oh, his matchless, boundless love. Still, there's more to follow. Every gallon of water that hits the bottom of Niagara Falls says to the river, there's more coming. And the grace of God, every time we experience the grace of God, it says to us, there's more grace coming. God lavished his grace upon us. And the great display of that grace is the work of Jesus Christ in redeeming us from our sins. And so he doesn't stop there. The work of Jesus Christ doesn't stop there. Verse 9. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the kind intention which he purposed in himself with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Jesus Christ has revealed God's plan 
He, the Lord Jesus, has made known to us the mystery of God's will. This is the first time we're going to see this word in Ephesians. As we mentioned the first week, it's six times in Ephesians. It is a truth which was previously unknown and is now revealed. The Lord Jesus is revealing God's plan, what God's doing on earth. And God has enabled us to understand this plan because the Lord Jesus has, has given us uh, all wisdom and insight. Wisdom is the idea of understanding the true nature of things. And insight is the discernment leading to knowing what the right action is. Doesn't guarantee we're going to do the right action, but we can see what the right action should be. And the point is, we are part of God's inner circle, given privileged information. In Acts, uh, we run into a woman and, and by the name of Lydia, and she's a seller of purple. Purple dye was a family secret. No one else knew how to make that color. It was kept inside the family, and it was a source of wealth because no one else could, could make that color because they knew where the dye came from. And God says, as my family, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen in the future. I'm going to tell you what my plan is. I'm going to give you the wisdom to see what the plan of God is. I'm going to give you the insight to see how you should line up with my plan so you can reap the benefits of knowing what I'm doing. And so he talks about what he's doing. He says, um, he did this according to the kind intention or his good pleasure towards us which he purposed himself with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times. That is the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. You know, mankind has a dream of a golden age. There used to be a song called the age of Aquarius, and you can use that term or whatever other term you want. But you know what? Mankind has continuously demonstrated our other lack of ability to produce such a time. And so we live so often in fear. Now, I remember my generation, the fear was nuclear war. I can remember living up in independence and being told, listen, if there's a nuclear strike by Russia, they're going to hit John Deere. So if we're at school, their alarm will go off. You will sit underneath your desk. And everybody said, that's really stupid. <laughs> that is not going to help at all. And I had friends that were terrorized by that. But I knew this world wasn't going to end that way. That Jesus Christ is coming. There will be a big war in Israel that Jesus Christ will win. But it wasn't going to end that way. And I could have peace when some of my best friends were terrified by that. Today, we, we have a younger generation that's absolutely terrified that we're going to face ecological extinction. When they had the trials at Nuremberg, they came up with some new designations for, to be tried. War crimes, genocide, and uh, uh, what's the third one? Um, crimes against humanity. There's a huge move in our world today to add to that list 
ecological crimes against humanity. Because they're terrified that our world is, is going to be, we're going to cause the extinction of all life on earth because of ecological uh, damage done. I'll tell you something. Jesus Christ is going to come back and make all things right and reign as Lord of Lords and King of Kings. And that's not going to happen. Now, please understand, there is the other side that this is Jesus Christ's planet. We are stewards. And he will hold people accountable for how they treat his planet. So there is a balance there. But we have words of comfort to a generation that's living in absolute terror of these events. And God says, listen, I'm telling you, here's what's going to happen. Yes, not everybody's going to be saved. But there is a time coming when there will be universal peace where sins, the disorder caused by sin is going to be made right. And my son will reign. So that we can have confidence as we face the future. And we can carry a message of confidence and comfort to a terrified world. In verse 11, he, he takes up yet another thing. Verse 11. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. There's two possible translations. Both of them uh, are valid. In Christ we have obtained an inheritance, or in Christ we have been appointed as God's heritage. And while both are true, I think in the context, especially as we look at some of the verses follow, uh, the better translation is we have been appointed or we've been chosen as God's heritage. In the Old Testament, Israel was referred to as God's possession or his special treasure. And now he's saying uh, those who are really of faith in Israel, who will be part of the church, and even Gentiles who were not part of God's covenant with Israel, you are going to be part of this special treasure. You're going to be part of, of this possession. Uh, when, it talk, when we talked about redemption in, in Titus, it talks about Jesus Christ redeeming a people from their lawless deeds that they might be a people for his own possession. And, and that's the, the picture here. Is uh, we are, he, Jesus Christ has purchased us to be God's own possession. And so you see in verse 12, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. He's speaking to Jews here. And, and that word Christ has the word the in front of it. It's the Christ. Those of us who recognize Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Messiah, and came out of Israel to faith in him, God planned for us to be to the praise of his glory. That we would praise him as Jews. That God's keeping his promises to save his people. To give them a glorious future. And then he says in verse 13, in him you also. Now he's talking to Gentiles. 
You Gentiles, you also have been made part of this group of people who are God's own possession, God's special treasure. And God's, and the Lord Jesus is revealing this plan of God to redeem us, to let us know what's happening in the future and that we might be his special treasure. And then he moves into the third section, which deals with the witness of the Spirit. And so he says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed. That's how you get in. You hear the message of truth. The gospel is the truth. You cannot get to heaven on your works, on your life. You need a savior. And the only savior is Jesus Christ. And he paid to purchase you out of the grip of sin with his own blood. And that's the truth. And anyone who doesn't receive the truth isn't going to be part of God's special treasure. And so he says to these Gentiles, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, personal. I had a daughter growing up. I wanted to see her saved. It didn't matter. This was between her and God. And it doesn't matter who your parents are. You may come from, from a, a family who has 12 generations of preachers. And it doesn't add a single thing to you other than you heard the message of the truth. And you have to respond to the good news and make it yours so it's your salvation. And so he talks about this process and then he talks about what the Spirit does. Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. In ancient times, after documents were signed, they were sealed to, to guarantee them. And, you know, we still use that in our modern parlance. We talk about a deal that is signed, sealed, and delivered. And even today, uh, if you're doing some official documents, they want it notarized. And you go to a notary and he pulls out his seal. And he'll say, all right, you're going to sign this. It's just your name. Yes, show me some evidence. Well, here's my driver's license. Okay, this is you. I'm verifying you, the signature is genuine. And so we still understand this idea of, of sealing. In ancient times, they would actually have a, a, a wax, a bit of melted wax, and they would have a stamp that they would stamp. And, and they were saying this was um, sealed. Sealing has several aspects to it. It, fe it speaks of a finished transaction. It implies authenticity. In this case, that a person is a genuine Christian. Romans 8, 9, if anyone does not um, have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. The spirit of God 
shows that you are a true Christian because he's come to indwell you. And that is God's stamp. That is God's seal that you are indeed a believer in Christ. It also shows ownership. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. You are not your own. If you have received Jesus Christ, God has sealed you with your spirit, and it means you belong to God. You are God's special possession. It needs to affect how you live. And so the last three chapters of this book are going to be talking about how God wants us to live. God's giving you this wisdom. You understand it. Oh, the Spirit of God's come to dwell in me. And the word temple there is actually holy of holies. My body becomes the holy, like the holy of holies of the temple of ancient Israel. God takes up residence there. In light of that, there should be a change of behavior. And he gives you discernment to know what that change of behavior should be. It doesn't mean you're going to do it. But it means you know the truth. And it means you know what's right. And someday you'll meet with the Lord on the choices. It also has the idea of protection and security. Again, 1 Peter 1, talking about that inheritance that's undefiled and, and imperishable, will not fade away, reserved in heaven, where it talks about reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God. The sealing of the Spirit of God protects me. That word protect there has the idea of a city that has a garrison inside it to protect it. And so God puts the Spirit of God in us to protect it. I will make it to heaven. Nothing will keep me from my reward, my inheritance. Every believer in Jesus Christ will make it because they're sealed by the Spirit of God. But it's not only that. Verse 14. Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. The Spirit seals us. It's a witness of God's ownership and protection and security. And it's a pledge. That's a witness of God's guarantee to us. Uh, a pledge is the deposit made guaranteeing our inheritance. Someone's called it a little bit of heaven in the believer's lives that guarantee much more to come. I worked real estate for a number of years. And if you've ever bought... Um, a, a piece of land or a house, you had with your offer to put an earnest payment, a pledge. That's, that's the Greek word here. It was used that way in business transactions. And I remember one time I had some people that wanted to buy a house, and uh, the house market, market then was, was quite um, uh, volatile. And uh, I said, well, we need to put a an earnest payment down. And they said, well, how much? And back then, often you put $100 or $150, and I said to them, how much do you got? And they said, well, we have $5,000. I said, well, do you want to buy this house? Because if you 
forfeit it. You could buy it, but you change your mind. They get the money. No, we want this house. Put it all down. So they put all $5,000 down. And I went to, to present the offer to the, to the owners, and someone else had written an offer for $1,000 more than our offer. And they had offered a $100 pledge. And the people looked at that $5,000 and said, your people really want our house. They must love our house. They really mean business. We're going to take their offer. And the other guy said, yeah, I'm going to give you 1000 more. They said, yeah, but look, these people really want our house. God gave the Holy Spirit to come and dwell within you because he really wants you. He really wants you. And so he says, who's given as a pledge for our inheritance with a view to the redemption. There's that same word. We're still somewhat bound with these bodies, but there's coming a day when there's going to be a complete redemption. I'm going to get a resurrection body. I'm going to be saved not just from the penalty of sin and, and the power of sin as I, as I live uh, walking with the Spirit of God, but someday I'll be delivered totally from its power and totally from its presence. And that's coming. And God's given me a Holy Spirit to dwell within me, to give me help over the power of sin. And, and technically enough that we could live beyond the, uh, free from sin. But he's saying, listen, I'm giving you this and I'm guaranteeing you that. And what's he says? To the praise of his glory. Have you thanked God? God, that you wanted me to be your child, that someday I'm going to stand before you holy and blameless. And you made that plan way back before this world began because you wanted me. That you took your beloved son and sent him, and he was willing to redeem us through his blood. He was willing to give us to oversee the giving of his word so that we can understand the plan of God. By the spirit of God indwelling us, he gives us the wisdom to understand the plan of God and the insight to know how to line up with it so that our entrance into heaven is abundant, as Second Peter talks about. Because God has revealed these things and given us the opportunity to line up with him and there's an inheritance waiting in heaven for us that's guaranteed. And God has put the Spirit of God in us to protect us and watch over us and to guarantee that we're going to make it to heaven. And he's done all that because he really, really wants you there. And it, it ought to cause us you know, to say, thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus. God, I'm thankful for the Spirit of God. And so Paul starts off this, this letter. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints. That's who verses 3 through 14 talks about. We've been given this position as saints, those set apart to God, part of God's possession. 
And then he says, who are faithful in Christ Jesus. The first set was true of everybody who the letter was addressed to. The second part probably wasn't. Because that's the last three chapters. It's where I take the wisdom of God, God's insight to here's how I ought to live, and I live it. And that's what God wants. That's why God's done it. May, may we be worshipers of God. Let's pray. Father, we, we come, and there's so much more in this passage. But I pray that you would take uh, what we've looked at today, and you would just impress upon us. Who are we that you should give your beloved son and crush him for us? Who are we that you should lavish your grace upon us and with every experience of grace we have comes the echo, there's still more to come. And God, we praise you for that. It's undeserved. It's out of your good pleasure. And we worship you for that in Jesus' name.